It was a dark and stormy night. Well, technically, it was morning. Yet, amid blusters of Stormy Daniels payouts and potential campaign finance violations, it was anything but a calm beginning to the week when the FBI raided the offices of the Donald's consigliere, Michael Cohen. But it was a fitting start to a week at that. We had Silicon Valley's baby-faced billionaire in the hot seat on the hill to respond to Senate octogenarians in vague platitudes. The retirement of wonk with a heart of green Paul Ryan, and most importantly... Chloe Kardashian finally had her baby. Right, Avery? <laughs> what a week, guys. I'm Tiana Lowe. And I'm Avery Hogarth. This is the political pregame. You guessed it, we're having dark and stormies. Sit down and have a drink with us. After a week of your mom's calling you to figure out how Facebook ads work, you'll need it. I guess also your congressman, too, but who knows? <laughs> All right, welcome back to the pod, everyone. This week, we will be covering the Zuckerberg testimonies and all the memes that ensued on his own platform afterwards, (laughs) if you haven't seen those yet. Um, Looking forward to Democrat and Republican strategy going into the midterms, however premature that may be, as well as Paul Ryan's retirement. So let's get into the Zuck and his apology tour. Tiana, take it away. Okay, so I think if if, if there was anything made abundantly clear... Regardless of whether or not you think the issue is either from the liberal perspective, Facebook doesn't crack down enough on hate speech and Russian bots, or from the conservative perspective, Facebook discriminates too much against right-leaning voices. Can we all just agree that the Senate is so old? Can we please stop voting in people who are already 45 years old and keeping them there for 28 years? My God, it was like watching, it, it was like explaining to my grandparents how to delete cookies from their computers. It was, that I was think, painful. That I think was my favorite painful. was, gosh, I wish I remembered who it was, but I think it was some congressman when he was questioning Zuckerberg. He called messaging within WhatsApp emails. When I email someone in WhatsApp, can Facebook know who I'm messaging? And to which Zuckerberg's reply obviously was, no, that's completely separate and it's also encrypted. But the congressman kept referring to WhatsApp messaging as emails and that just kind of set me That was not a good look. And I think more than anything, and we'll get into the nitty gritty in a second, the main takeaway that I had was if these people don't know beyond what their staff briefed them on within five hours... They should not be in charge of regulating these services. That being said, I think that Mark Zuckerberg's feet need to be held to the fire by the public. And I'm and I'm sure that we'll get into this. And I do I do think that that consumers and civilians need to take greater ownership of of their relationship with social media and their relationship with the news and their relationship with civics in general. But but my God. The Senate and the House, I mean, like, luckily the House had, like, a slightly harder line of questioning. I watched, I would say, I watched probably half of both testimonies, both yesterday and um, on Tuesday. But that Senate hearing, thank God you had Ben Sass and Ted Cruz and even Amy Klobuchar, um, the Democratic senator, good lines of questioning in terms of discussing your privacy and the difference between Facebook saying, oh, well, like, you know you sent away those rights, and realistically, consumers not knowing that, discrimination against conservative voices. Um, but for the, for the rest of that Senate hearing, my God, I, I just, just do you think that these people should be the ones regulating Facebook? Well, it's tough. I think the same way that 
Congress has special committees for specialized issues. I think one really needs to be developed and enforced and definitely comprised of the right-minded people who have a grasp on technology and more of the nuanced aspects to be able to understand what even regulations of data would look like and and everything else. Because right now, I mean, if you're calling WhatsApp messaging an email, I don't really have much trust in you to, you know, propose legislation that would really be effective in that regard. That being said, there is without a doubt no denying the fact that Zuckerberg was extremely well coached and well prepped going into this these hearings um, with what seemed like definite premeditated and calculated responses. There were a few times where I think the questioning from Congress could have been more on point had they had more of an in-depth knowledge of technology and of what Facebook does and and all those nuanced aspects. However, the broader message could have been understood by by any of these congressmen's questioning could have been understood by, you know, the average person like you or me who is pretty apt in technology. Uh, However, Zuckerberg just kind of sidestepped, I would say, and very he did it very well but he definitely kind of just avoided answering certain head-on questions where you could understand and rather just nitpicked at the way the question was asked and saying my team will get back to you or i don't really understand what you're saying or no facebook does do that and just relied on the congressman not really having any further information to be able to really really press on him which was a little bit frustrating i wish uh I wish those that questioned him came in a little more prepared and maybe sought some counsel from those who are experienced in the tech field and really had an understanding. No, and I think it's funny because I think that there's sort of there's sort of two reads of Zuckerberg right now from a political perspective. You have the mainstream left; they see Zuckerberg as sort of this like corporate leviathan with this globalist agenda and his primary goals are just involve money making and because of that he allowed some fascist to enter the white house and then you have on the right they view oh my god they're they're discriminating against diamond and silk and other conservative commentators whatnot when really it's not about it's less about like is he some corporate shill or is he some conservative hater, but more the fact that he has abdicated his role as a publisher and really didn't accept the fact that Facebook is a publisher or publicly admit it until this hearing. And I was shocked that he actually was willing to concede that Facebook is a publisher because that means that his legal liability is so much greater than Facebook being a series of social media tools. And and, and, and I think the reason why I find this particularly egregious is because Facebook pushed how many millions of, I think it was 4 million advertisers um, to back the brand's pivot to video in 2016. He publicly boasted in 2015 that he had signed contracts with dozens of celebrities in order to pivot them to video. Facebook wanted to replace TV. Facebook wanted to be the next Netflix. And when you do that, and when you choose which voices to promote and which, which voices to demote, you are a publisher. You are not a social media platform. You're not a series of tools. You and you have publisher. to be willing to accept the, the different responsibilities yes. that come along with that. Yes. Yeah, and that's sort of, and that's why, yes, Facebook should not be discriminating against Diamond and Silk, but not on the grounds of free speech, because if Facebook were just a tool that anyone could use, like email, like if I send you an email and if I'm sending death threats, Google isn't liable for that because submitting a death threat is a crime, you know? But if, if Facebook's choosing to elevate and demote certain voices, then then of course 
then of course they're liable. And in, and, and I'm, I'm shocked that, that Zuckerberg's lawyers let him even say that he's a publisher of Conceit, which is something he should have conceded in 2015 when he started inking deals with celebrities. Well, I think, I mean, everyone's calling this Zuckerberg's apology tour because there's no doubt he was very apologetic and remiss, I think, for the missteps that Facebook had in regards to the 2016 election and even many elections prior globally. We have to understand, too, this isn't even just about the 2016 election that took place in America. This is about elections that take place all over the world. And Facebook is becoming an increasingly larger, I guess, political actor in that regard. It's easy to to look at the scope of the American election and see how detrimental that could be. But what about other countries in which it's kind of a one-party rules-all system, struggling democracies where the obviously the dominant party has more money and more means to be able to advertise on Facebook? How does that affect politics in those regions. So I think the, I guess the span of Facebook and its, and its scope is far larger than, than just America. So this is even far greater of an issue than the domestic one that we've experienced here in the U.S. And I think the good thing that can come out of these hearings and Zuckerberg's apologetic nature and his, I guess, perceived willingness to want to reform how Facebook, you know, has previously conducted themselves in this political regard is that not only will this hopefully have a beneficial effect on America in the 2018 midterms and and moving forward, but also in many elections worldwide. Yeah. And I think, okay, so I'm glad that that there was a deep exploration during these. It's not that I, I don't really care about these hearings in terms of creating policy. I, I, I care about these hearings because it's forcing the public to view Facebook as what it is, which is an international conglomerate that is responsible for the communications of 2 billion people. Because Facebook is now, their market permeation is 2 billion people wide. So I think that it's important that, you know, they assess the fact that when you use Facebook, there's no such thing as a free lunch. You are you are the product. You are giving away your data as the product. And now I've seen a lot of people referring, it, referring to it as Facebook selling your data. Facebook does not sell your data. Facebook sells access to you. So, for instance, if you if you sell sailboats, Facebook will meet. So, if you reach out to Facebook to have an ad, you can choose people between the ages of twenty one to thirty four. A target who, audience, yeah, who live near the coast. But those companies never see your data. The reason why the Cambridge Analytica case was such a big deal was because for a time, Cambridge Analytica had direct access to your data through the personality quiz, and let it. Let me remind you that Obama 2012 was the campaign that invented this method. It was it was the only difference between the Obama 2012 app and Cambridge Analytica's personality quiz is that people were willingly turning over not only their own data, but the data of their friends. And I think it's important for consumers to remember when you sign, when you give Facebook all this information, you're signing away your rights. And should the government curb that? No, but I, I am actually glad that we're having hearings to bring it back into public attention. But the consumer base at large needs to be a little bit more cognizant about about being discriminate with their information. Yeah, and it seemed like with the questioning from, you know, the Senate Judiciary Committee and the Senate Commerce Committee, um, it seemed as though those that were doing the questioning were very distraught at the fact that your data is given out. But 
let me remind everyone that when you sign into any of these apps and you and you select sign in with Facebook because it may be the more streamlined and easy and efficient process rather than creating a whole new login name or whatever it may be, or when you even sign up for Facebook in general, you are giving affirmative consent to the user agreements of both of those apps in which you are allowing, if you are signing into an app with Facebook, you're allowing that app to access your data. So how, how up in arms can you really be about it? And it's not a good enough defense, uh, I think, to get angry about just to say, well, I didn't know they were going to use my data in that way. You gave them basically unmitigated access to your Facebook profile by logging into the Obama 2012 app with your Facebook account. So you can't be mad at that. But then again, what you can press for and what you can lobby for is if you don't like the way that system is and you don't think campaigns and political actors should be able to have this kind of access to information, you find it maybe to be an unfair advantage, then okay, that's where the government can step in and create a campaign regulation or legislation of some sort that regulates that. And so maybe that's what we'll see on the horizon. I think a big thing that came out of out of these uh, out of these questions was that I think the theme that I drew from it was that a lot of people want Facebook to be much more heavily regulated. And on the conservative side of things, there was also, I know uh, Ted Cruz raised a few questions about how there's been censorship, uh, well, censorship, I say in air quotes, on conservative content. And he raised questions there about in Facebook's hiring process, do they inquire about the partisanship of their potential and prospective employees, to which Zuckerberg said, no, they do not at all. So really, there's no way to know if the Facebook, you know, employee base leans left or right. However... It is important to note that the Facebook employee base, when looking at these accounts, um, you know, for instance, the Russia accounts that were kind of spreading this quote unquote fake news or anything that it may be. um, And when you're looking to censor those accounts, take them down for maybe misleading language or aggressive language, whatever, that this is kind of disproportionately fallen on the right side. I don't know if that has merit to it or not, or if that's more of political partisanship, but that's an important thing that I took away from it. Yeah, I mean, I I think fundamentally goes to, you as a consumer, what do you take your relationship with Facebook to be? Facebook is extremely valuable as a Rolodex because it doesn't involve a phone plan, it doesn't involve a phone number, you can be anywhere in the world and use it. So obviously, it's super valuable as a Rolodex. I know when I was living in France, it was the best way for me to keep in touch with people in America because you don't need to worry about, like, am I leaving them a text message at odd hours of the night? Whatever. But then, but as a news aggregator, is it valuable? I don't know. It's not like Twitter where you can, you can follow... I mean, my Twitter feed is probably half liberals, half conservatives, whereas on Facebook, you are really only who your friends are. Like, like very few people follow public figures on Facebook. That's not its primary use. You join groups, and groups are a great way to, do, to, to put yourself into an echo chamber. Because how many debates are actually there for open discourse? Very few. Well, not only that, people have to understand, and users on Facebook have to understand, is that you most often than not on Facebook, are digesting very, very biased information that plays into your own biases. So if you're looking to break out of those and break out of those echo chambers, Facebook isn't the spot where you should be getting your news. Although, you know, truth be told, when you're scrolling through your news feed, it might be easy to just pick up a news story that appears on there. But again, with what we said before, with advertisers targeting to certain targeted audiences and, and and advertising to certain targeted audiences... You aren't going to see anything out of out of the realm 
of what is indicative on of your behavior on Facebook. And so this plays into a bigger issue. Obviously, Tana, you kind of referenced it that users, and I, we say this all the time, I think with media, but to even a greater degree, you need to be looking at everything you view at Facebook with such a discerning lens. And to understand that, okay, maybe everything I'm seeing from this Facebook account that claims to be a pro Hillary Clinton account or a pro Donald Trump account isn't something that actually has the most empirical, empirical factual evidence. And so I think it's twofold. I think potentially there does need to be more regulations or there do need to be more regulations uh, in regards to Facebook. But at the same time, users have to take a responsibility into their own hands. Okay, I, I have one final question with regards to this issue, with this issue, and I think it's probably the most important one. Mark Zuckerberg is worth how much? Sixty, like three billion dollars. Who let him go into Capitol Hill with that haircut? <laughs> he looked like a robot. He, I, I don't know what that was. I don't know what he was trying to invoke. Maybe sympathy. That like, what was that haircut? I mean, that's been his haircut since his Harvard. <laughs> no, days, no, so. okay, it was not the hard bowl cut. He could have used like a little bit of gel or something. He looked that was okay. What, I, I mean, yeah. he traded in the usual um, t-shirt, hoodie, and jeans for for a definite. You, you know, you had the navy apology suit yeah. with the Facebook blue tie. I think you know the optics couldn't have been much better for him. Although the hair aside, so yeah. I don't know. But more important things: porn stars and midterms. Yeah, we are in for a wild ride with the 2018 midterms, to say the least. I you mean, guys thought that 2016 was long? You guys thought that October and dealing with the Access Hollywood tape, you thought that was a long time? Get ready. This is going to be brutal. Well, because if anything, as a result of the 2016 ele- election, it is completely rejigged the system oh my God. to one of just complete... I don't know. I think Washington and politics is turning more and more into Hollywood than even Hollywood is. I think Hollywood Hollywood's is... Quite Hollywood's quite boring, by Hollywood, you know, as a result of the Me Too movement, has become far more docile in that Hollywood is now trying to do everything to become mm-hmm. politically correct, and Washington is now doing everything to become politically incorrect in order to gain coverage and likes and and reach news feeds on all these different social media platforms. So it'll be quite interesting. I mean, this week, obviously, which was in the big headlines, was the Michael Cohen raid uh, from the FBI. But we will see what comes of that. Yeah, so Michael Cohen, who has been Trump's personal attorney for, what, decades? Like, I think since, like, the 90s, at least. So basically, Personal attorney or personal henchman? Henchman. Up, I mean, up, I'm, for, up for discussion. I'm, I mean, he's the Don's consigliere, as, as we said earlier. So, so there, are, there are two different things at play. One is, one is the uh, raid. And the raid was really early on Monday morning. It was a Trump appointee who approved. It's a pretty extensive search warrant in order to allow um, the FBI to collect information that has been shared between an attorney and his client. It, it like it requires a pretty high burden of proof on the person requesting the warrant. So, and, and this was a Trump appointee. So, lest we think that this is partisanship, it this there must be something there. So that's this, an important thing to note yeah. because I think for those of you on the right, and for a lot of people in in right wing media, people are kind of trying to spread this news tornado of it being maybe a partisan agenda from the left. But as you yeah. said, it, it really isn't, or at least it should yeah, be. Yeah, I mean, I mean, like, the burden of proof is really high, and it was a Trump appointee. So, I mean, like, he wasn't doing it because they were knitting sweaters. 
So that being said, it does not mean it has to do with Trump. It, it could be other people in the campaign. Because right now, right now, we have no evidence that links Trump to rigging, colluding, allowing Russian meddling, whatever. We have, we have lots of sketchiness with Paul Manafort and other actors and Carter Page and whatnot. But, but so before we, conservatives don't repel this immediately. Like, this could just be about Michael Cohen doing shady things. So that brings us to the second issue, which is about uh, Michael Cohen's payment to Stormy Daniels. So people are questioning whether it's a campaign finance violation if Trump knew about it. Because if Trump knew nothing about it, then it was Michael Cohen doing what Michael Cohen wanted to do to protect, to protect the boss. If Trump Which did, is unlikely, and a lot of attorneys have said that they would never have made a payment on behalf of, well, in their client's best interest without consulting their client. And that's why this becomes unlikely, and that's why this becomes, maybe in terms of like impeachment purposes, far more easy to prove than Russian collusion. Okay, but that being said, colluding with a foreign hostile government versus committing a, what, what was she paid, $130,000? And committing a minor campaign finance violation are very different things. And I think this brings us to what was questioned by the New York Times in a report earlier this week. If the Democrats choose campaign finance violation as their bludgeon to try and impeach Trump with, I think that might actually backfire. And that's something that I know like the Times was questioning, but it's because... I think if Trump actually is, if there is a smoking gun found that proves that Trump was willing to get in bed with Putin in order to, to bring the election in his favor, I think you're going to see a lot of people who held their noses to the polls to go vote for Trump just because they didn't like Hillary so much be like, okay, no, that's disgusting. And if I think Trump, even if, in if terms Trump of Trump like- authorized uh, a six-figure payment to someone so they didn't talk about his sex life, I think that's a lot more sympathetic. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that I think, obviously, with a campaign finance issue, that would obviously be enough to start the impeachment trials. However, I don't think that there will actually be a vote that would lead to impeachment. So I think that would start the trials. Sure, of course, that's enough evidence. But will that lead to impeachment? It's my personal opinion that it wouldn't, because as you said, that's kind of nominal in the grand scheme of things. Um, However... Obviously, the Russian collusion, not only would I think that you would see people who went to the polls, held their nose and voted for Trump in terms of like partisanship, not be able to do so anymore. But I would think in terms of that, even starting impeachment trials in Congress, I think in terms of a congressional vote for impeachment, that a lot of the Republicans that have been holding their nose, a lot of the establishment Republicans that that have been holding their nose would then go ahead and say, you know, what, I can't support this guy anymore. But but think about Bill Clinton. When Bill Clinton, when, when the impeachment trial started for Bill Clinton, his approval ratings shot up because everyone felt bad. They thought he was being bludgeoned with the fact that he had a sexual proclivity that was less than kosher. Yes, but it's also a completely different circumstance in terms of the allegations. So I, if I'm talking about Russia here and yeah. Russia yeah. Being, yeah. being the catalyst that could actually lead to a full-blown actual impeachment that would result in Pence taking over, that versus Bill Clinton's conduct is very different. I think in terms of a bipartisan level, everyone can, can get along with the fact that the U.S. does not get along with Russia. We are two countries that do not really cooperate with each other. And to collude with Russia is just a mass act of treason. Bill Clinton, that wasn't a treasonous act. That was just kind of... Stripping an intern. Yeah, raunchy stuff and don't do it in the Oval. Yeah. Um, I mean, okay, I, I think the issue is going to be... Well, it's really two things. One, 
are people so desensitized to the Russia, Russia, Russia business because everyone has been beating this drum consistently for the last, what, year and a half at this point that if anything is actually unearthed, that people won't respond properly? Or will impeachment trials start just the second Nancy Pelosi can take over and it, in the end, won't be based on a lot of changes in evidence, but it's just because the blue wave comes through? Yeah, so say nothing comes of either of these investigations. Still something that Republicans are pushing so hardcore right now with their base, and this is what the basis of the New York Times article was about, was that this kind of, I guess, notion and rhetoric that we can't let Democrats take over the House and Senate in 2018 because they are going to move to try to impeach Trump right away. So if you care about the party voters, you have to come out and you have to vote because we can't let this happen. And and that's like Mitch McConnell saying that the first thing, he literally said the first thing on the Democratic agenda, if they get that Senate seat, is going to be the movement to impeach Trump and to um, take away the tax reform bill that was passed by Republicans. Okay, let me just talk about tax reform for a second. Why? And this, I think, just discredits Mitch McConnell to begin with on those two statements, because from a strategy perspective, when is taking away tax cuts from people? When does that ever, ever look good? I don't care if you're Democrat or Republican. Everyone can get along with the fact that it's nice to have a little extra money in your pocket. Somewhere in the Hollywood hills of heaven, Ronald Reagan is smiling down on both of us. From from the Democrats' perspective, and and I mean, Tiana and I were talking about this before the podcast, and, and I said that same thing to her. I said, the Democrats would not be that stupid to just take away tax cuts from millions of Americans. And I think the biggest... I guess when the Republicans can get from the tax reform bill is that Democrats were so up in arms about it beforehand. And for the most part, we've been relatively quiet afterwards because we're like, oh, okay, I kind of like this. Like, I like the fact that I didn't have to, like, pay as much in taxes this year. Of course we liked it. So that wouldn't play well to the Democrats' base. And although, yes, the Democrats have kind of done some stupid things as of late, I don't think they'd be stupid enough to do that. And so that's one thing. And then when you look at the impeachment side of things— It's twofold, right? So basically the impeachment argument and the use of this rhetoric to, I guess, be used as a political tool for the Republicans going into 2018 functions off of the hope that there is still large enough of a Trump base that this will actually be useful in that the threat of impeachment will force all these Trump loyalists to come out and vote and therefore maintain, you know, the Senate majority that the Republicans have. But that's a big if, and we're not close enough to, to the 2018 midterms to really know what the public opinion is on Trump and the polling data and everything else. I mean, we do know that Trump is at less than 40% of approval ratings in a lot of toss-up states, states, which makes that a little bit dicey. So I think it's twofold. If if the Republicans go with that agenda, it can either boomerang back in their face or it can pay off. Because if the base is less than what the Republicans think it is— then that may, might even polarize more people and more moderates against Trump for coming out. Because, honestly, for hardcore conservatives and more establishment Republicans, I mean, to the extremist perspective, wouldn't they like Pence more than Trump anyways if Pence I were mean, to take okay. over? Well, okay. Wow. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, okay, so I'm going to start off with Trump base one. So when you— th- okay. In a, in a hypothetical scenario, let's say it's Donald Trump versus, I'm trying to think of, like, 
Donald Trump versus Joe Biden. Very hypothetically. I don't think that's incredibly likely just because Joe Biden is really old. But if it were Donald Trump versus Joe Biden... Good I mean, man. I, I okay. wish Joe Biden could okay. be, like, 10 years younger. Good good man, personally. Blue dog Democrat. Gets along with of, a lot lots, of Republicans. Lots of things that I disagree with, but I think not a person who I dislike. Someone who I think he's a likable human being. That, if, if that's the calculus, then Trump doesn't have a base. Trump has people who dislike some of the things that he does, like some of the things that he does, but is also facing a Democrat who doesn't revile the white working class, who isn't married to identity politics, who is obviously a liberal, but is willing to work with conservatives. If you have Donald Trump versus, I don't know, Kamala Harris, Trump's base just became the entire Republican Party and anyone who is two millimeters to the right of I don't know. I'm not I'm like, not I'm not so Joe sure Biden. of that though, because like Trump's approval ratings right now are in the forties. As sitting president. Yeah. I mean, but think about the elections. Think about the polls. How many people wouldn't admit they were voting for Trump? I mean, I, I, I think it has to do it has to do with how extreme the Democrats position themselves. And the thing is, going into 2018, they are clearly appealing to voter turnout, which means they're appealing to the most radical portions of their base. So they turn out everyone. If they continue that into 2020, I think that makes Trump's re-election campaign for him. It's not vote for Trump. Again, once again, it's vote against single-payer health care. Vote against having your kids indoctrinated to believe they're 55 genders. Again, vote against, like, hating the white working class, whatever. And, like, I'm not saying that these are valid things. I'm saying that is what will work. Just demographically speaking, that will work. I think regardless of anything, it's extremely premature, this kind of weaponry of impeachment on either side. Whether, like, it doesn't matter which party decides to use this to their political or rhetorical advantage. Um, I think it's definitely premature because... We don't know. I, I, I mean, I would hope within, a de- within the Democratic Party that we are rejigging the platform to one that can work for 2018. I've talked about it at length on this show in terms of what I think the Democratic agenda needs to be going into 2018. So I hope they follow some of that. Um, so we don't really know if the Democrats really change their agenda to make the working class feel like, OK, Democrats have got our back. We don't know if the impeachment thing is going to really play into Trump's base or if it's going to play into the Democrats' base. And so, again, I think this is really premature to be like, I think Ted Cruz at a recent talk rolled out <laughs> kind of like a campaign video yeah, um, with <laughs> all these things saying that Democrats want to impeach Trump and that I think this is all very premature and I think the use of this is honestly kind of deadly this early on because we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what public opinion is going to be. There could be a lot of good things that happen under the Trump administration um, that could still happen leading into 2018 when people actually come out to vote. And there could also be a lot of detrimental things. And so, again, I mean, I think I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, I mean, that's probably especially just like... Trump has his own personal stuff that he will clearly have to work through, just given how much has been on Earth, you know? I mean, like, you had literally, like, 3 a.m. this morning, I woke up because I had a push notification from the New Yorker, because Brendan Farrow found out that a doorman was paid off by AMI because there's allegedly a, a, a an illegitimate child of Trump's uh, that has since been on, has, no one's verified it. But the point is, these stories will continue, and I think Democrats would be wise not to pounce until they, they find a actual smoking gun. And I think that much is abundantly clear. One more thing I would like to add is as much as even Republicans are kind of pushing this rhetoric 
further, even kind of little Republican subsets like the Faith and Freedom Coalition, they and it's run by, I guess, longtime Republican strategist Ralph Reed, and he sent out a solicitation for fundraising, and this is literally what some Republican coalitions are fundraising upon is this impeachment thing and saying that um, they, it was entitled impeachment election. Will you do your part to help stop this coup attempt by radical anti-Christian left and the media against our duly elected president? I just, I mean, I think on each side, we need to just stop spreading this propaganda. I think we're going to see what comes of these investigations, but if nothing comes of them, the, the Democrats aren't going to try to impeach Trump because they can't. There is no basis I mean, I mean, for a trial they, proceeding. I, I'll put it this way. I trust you not to try and impeach Trump. I even think I trust Chuck Schumer not to impeach Trump. But if some if a blue wave does take over and if Nancy Pelosi is in charge of the House, will she start the impeachment proceedings? I think so. Well, it's difficult, right? Because in the Democratic Party, I mean, we're divided as America in general in terms of politics right now potentially more than ever but even within the democratic party and this is why for a lot of people that have always been democrats it's getting harder and harder to be democrats i mean i've worked for a guy pat harris who's running for senate in california as a progressive democrat in air quotes i put again however and he's always been a democrat always voted democrat however it's been harder and harder for him to even stick with the democratic party and not just run as an independent because he really believes that it's not aligning with his views anymore yeah, because you have the establishment Democrats like the Pelosi's and Schumer's who want to stick to the status quo of how things have always gone, yeah, which tradition. I mean, and the Hillary Clintons and the Bill Clintons. And I mean, we saw how that worked out in 2016, but then in turn, since there's, there's this been this failure to adapt, you've seen this hardcore leftist progressive movement fall under the Democrats, which progressives honestly normally would be independents, but it's this progressive movement falling under the Democrats. And so within these two camps, you see Schumer and Pelosi right now trying to put the blankets over this impeachment thing, trying to say, whoa, 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 let's push the brakes. We, we're not, let's not push this story and this rhetoric. And so they're in the not impeach Trump camp in terms of rhetoric going into the 2018 elections. And then you see the hardcore progressives saying impeach Trump at all costs, blah, blah, blah. Burn so if the those, witch. If those people get elected, yes, it's troubling. But yeah. what's more troubling for the Democratic Party is this lack of cohesion within it in terms of messaging. Yeah, I mean, clearly there's civil wars on both sides. And I mean, I, I, I don't want to jump ahead too quickly to our next point. But I mean, the left, yeah, you have this civil war between like like the Bernie Kratz and the establishment Dems. And I think even someone like like Pat Harris, who obviously is extremely economically like leftist, but also believes that there's a place for people of all colors and all variations, as opposed to the like the religion, like the mantle of intersectionality that I think is 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 and is, he's is definitely going to for the, for the working the man too, yeah. which is like yeah. a key difference. And I think his messaging gets us gets that across versus yeah. the democratic kind of. Yeah, regular no, I mean, norm. Full disclosure, I mean, like, I've met Pat and he's so sweet. Oh my god, no, but I'm, but, but no, but like, honestly, like, like that, like, like the whole intersectionality mantle will, that's going to hurt the Democrats if they get married, stay too married to that. So, problems with the Democrats now. Problems for the Republicans. So Paul Ryan resigned. Um, well, not resigned. He's technically retiring. So he's going to see out the rest of his term as Speaker. And I think that it's it's disturbing to me. That Paul Ryan, someone who was a Jack Kemp acolyte, 
spent ample amount of time after the 2012 election, which he was basically poached for, did not really volunteer himself to be the vice presidential um, nominee with Mitt Romney, spent an extensive amount of time on sort of going en route with with prominent African-American civil rights activists to understand the origins of poverty, to really try and uh, rejig what would later become Path to Prosperity, sort of like his, like, congressional agenda. Someone who I think really had good intentions, and you can disagree with if tax cuts are the right thing or if, in, or if entitlement reform is the right thing, I think had good intentions. The same way I would say someone like, I'm trying to, okay, I, I swear I'm trying. Joe Biden, I'm sorry. I, I, I'm just relying on Joe Biden as, like, my good Democrat. But point is, good intentions, and I mean, but, Joe Biden but, actually just yeah. talked about that on a Pod Save America podcast yeah. in that he said, I never, any Republicans that I fought with, ones that I respected, I never questioned their intentions or their yeah. motives. I just disagreed with them on policy. Yeah. So, so it just, to me, like, I don't understand the freaking glee fest, both on like the hard Trump right, like, you know, all like the people who hated Paul Ryan because they wouldn't get in the Trump train early, whatever, I get it, tribalism, yada, yada, yada. But then also, why do people on the left hate Paul Ryan this much? It's like, if any, if anything, like, whatever, hate Mitch McConnell, I understand. But like, Paul Ryan came out and he openly spoke against all of the nasty stuff Trump said within reason because Paul Ryan as Speaker of the House his single, the only goal he had was to push good legislation. He was not meant to be, like, the great philosopher of the Republican Party that should be reserved for outside thinkers and for outside writers. And he tried to push for legislation. He passed multiple health care bills that would have repealed and replaced Obamacare. Mitch McConnell couldn't do it. But he also was trying to work with Democrats. He's the one who said... He's the one who brought Pelosi a bill that would have saved all of the dreamers if we could just have a reform to chain migration. So I, I just don't understand. Where does the Paul, where does the Paul Ryan vitriol come from? From, like, the left? I Keep think, us explaining it to me I because I've never called I think it. from hard, like hardcore left-wing media, um, I guess, like, the disillusionment with Paul Ryan comes from his stances on women's rights, namely pro-life versus pro-choice debate because he's obviously always been hardcore pro-life and that's been definitely I, get, I think that factor has definitely been like exacerbated by left-wing media that's one point and then I think the other point that I think regular kind of leftist media makes is that in their view he kind of compromised his integrity with being so against Trump in the primaries, not even willing to say his name or address him, and then all of a sudden kind of being a cheerleader, State of the Union speech, standing up, clapping behind him, smiling, patting him on the back. I mean, it seems a little hypocritical, I think, from left from the left. I mean, okay, here's the thing. If Bernie Sanders became president, I would be on this podcast raving my head off for every time he tried to expand Social Security, introduce single-payer, whatever. I would also be vociferously cheering him on for criminal justice reform, for expansion of civil liberties, for ending of civil asset forfeiture. Why must there be... Why cannot people live with this cognitive dissonance of people doing things that they dislike, people saying things that they dislike, but also being capable of enacting legislation that they do like? I think... No, I think that's a valid point, and I think people to an extent, are capable of that. However, I think that Paul Ryan set 
a, br- a bad precedent for himself by being so adamantly against Trump. One of, if you were to pick out in the primary season, one of the elected officials or one of like any any high up in the Republican Party that was so against Trump, and you were to pick like the top three, Paul Ryan would be at the top of everyone's list. But yet, all of a sudden, all of those complaints, all of those, I guess, critiques of Trump from Paul Ryan's perspective. We're just he just silenced them, I'm, and so and, and so I think that's where that kind of willingness to be, and, and I think the public, I guess, public's willingness to be okay with Paul Ryan cheering for the issues that matter and that are good, and and you know not cheering for the ones that aren't good and that don't matter. I think that's where he kind of lost the public's opinion in that regard because when you set the precedent of being so against the president, and then all of a sudden you're kind of not maintaining that then, you know, you're obviously leaving yourself open to get vilified. Yeah, and I mean, so it, it's it's funny because you have someone like Jeff Flake, who, the senator from Arizona who's not running for re-election, who has publicly come out against Trump, wrote the book, in uh, Barry Goldwater, The Conscience of a Conservative. You know, Barry, uh, or, or Jeff Flake still receives flack on the left for voting with Trump. I think this is... Flake gets rep- flack. I mean, That's a good Flake, podcast Flake name if we ever have to do one on him. It's true, but like... But I think that a lot of this just kind of has to do with Ryan. Like, sure, he criticizes the Access Hollywood tape, but he's not doing it strongly enough. I do have to say, this is me more addressing the conservatives in our audience rather than the liberals. We should be glad that he is resigning, not because I dislike Paul Ryan. If anything, I think Paul Ryan's one of the politicians that I have admired since I've started caring about politics when I was a a wee lass in Orange County. Um... And, but he's leaving for a couple of good reasons. I think, one, he shouldn't be tethered to fighting a nasty re-election campaign. Like, he would definitely win, but just, he would be forced to answer for all of his and the entire GOP sins. Two, I think he understands that his brand has been so vilified by the left that he, he needs time off from the national stage. Although he says and he's not going to run for any office ever which, again. Which is very believable, because if you read Paul Ryan's biography, the reason why he's such a fitness nut is because he is the first, or he hasn't had a single male family member in two generations live above the age of, I think it's like 55 or something. Like, his, 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 his he was heavily impacted by the fact that his father died really young when he was a kid. And so he he's very concerned about time with his family. He, I mean, points for feminism, he said that he felt bad that his wife took on the primary carol with his children when he feels like it should be mutual, which I totally support. I think that men and women should take a mutual role in raising the children. Um, but I, I think that it, it's good to be appreciative that Paul Ryan is willing to take a break from this just because clearly he is between a rock and a hard place, uh, a rock and a hard place. But, but conservatives, please just remember, we have the White House, the Senate, and the House of Representatives. We don't. We are not in any major war. Our economy is doing excellently. We aren't facing any immediate domestic threat. Really, like our biggest crisis right now that everyone addresses is a culture war, and that everyone does not address is our um, basically social security bubble waiting to pop. Yet President Trump's approval ratings are so low. I mean, I'm assuming this has to be because of the circus that this White House has turned our country into. We might not get this again in a generation. So be appreciative if Paul Ryan is willing to be a hammer while 
everyone else is willing to we decide and talk about trade wars and tariffs and another war in the Middle East, which I can't remember a time in my life that we haven't been in. So, so, so I will say the Paul Ryan hate, honestly, to me is, I don't want to say offensive because that sounds like emotional, but it is deeply, deeply, deeply misguided. And I will, I will say he will be missed. I don't know if he had the temperament to be Speaker of the House because he is an ideas guy. He is a Jack Kemp accolade. And right now, that uh, uh, Speaker of the House, that's not what they need. But but I will say, I, I think we will miss him when he's gone. Well, it's definitely a loss for Republicans, even when you look at it from a fundraising perspective, especially going into 2018 and with his retirement looming, because he's arguably the most important fundraiser in the House. I mean... Amongst Washington, he's known as the guy that attends fundraisers every single night. And even up to date now, he's raised $54 million for the Republican Party for the 2018 campaign in the midterms. And so I wonder if people are going to be, like, with the relationships and big donors and those the relationships that Paul Ryan has built with big donors, I wonder if with his retirement that will result in less funding than usual. I don't know. We'll see. Although I'm not totally convinced, maybe as convinced that you are, that— Paul Ryan isn't going to run again for any elected office because, I mean, so he was on CNN with Jake Tapper and Jake Tapper was questioning about these same things. Are you sure you're not running again? I don't really believe you is kind of what Jake was saying. And he cited that the fact that he is retiring is because he wants to spend more time with his children. Although his children are teenagers, they're going to be leaving the house soon. If I was Paul Ryan, I would have got out before the Trump mess then. Right? I mean, but, but doing like a part of... Okay, this is another thing where I'm sympathetic to Paul Ryan. Paul Ryan could have gone out. And he would have had a pretty, I mean, I don't know, great legacy in the sense that he, he refocused the Republican Party in a lot of ways away from being like, like like sort of this old boys club into focusing on things like entitlement reform. That was at least one of his aims. But he wanted to stay, I think, to keep the Republican Party stable. And I think that he did that. I think, I, I honestly think that Paul, like, I know I'm probably one of the only people to say this. I think that Paul Ryan was successful in making sure that Trump didn't go off in the deep end in his first year in office to focus all of his time on the Muslim ban and listen solely to Steve Bannon. And instead, think about things like health care reform and think about things like tax cuts. And the fact is, at the end of the day, Everything that Trump got done, with the exception of regulatory reform, which you could still attribute to Ryan and McConnell telling Trump, is attributable to Ryan and McConnell. Because McConnell made sure that Gorsuch got through. He was a whip. And Ryan delivered on multiple bills that McConnell couldn't even do. Yeah, no, there's no doubt that it's a loss for Republicans. I mean, there's there's no doubting that there, especially from like an establishment perspective and just stability, as you cited. And so... I mean, it'll interesting to it'll be interesting to see the face of the Republican Party moving forward, yeah. especially after 2018, because I have a feeling there's there's definitely going to be a big facelift, and and we'll see what happens. A facelift? We'll I hope it's a facelift and not like a you know bomb going off. Yeah, or a botching of it. But um, I mean, we'll see. No doubt, we we even had more topics that we could have talked about this week. So much. This was a crazy week. So much went on, but no doubt there will be no lack of excitement next week. Um, I don't know, maybe something political will happen at Coachella this weekend with all of LA and basically the rest of hipster America <sighs> going. Knows? So you know I'll be there. I'll be on Twitter. <laughs> I will not. Um, however, if you guys are going, be safe. And as always, you can follow us on 
SoundCloud and iTunes. Toss us a subscribe or a follow or a like. Uh, comment or tweet at us on Twitter at Tiana the First and at Avery Hogarth. And you can check out our website at thepoliticalpregame.com. Thank you guys so much. Yeah.